going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6, and verses 16 and 17. If you have a physical Bible, if you'd go ahead and turn there with me, uh, the, the text will be up on our screens. It's also printed in your bulletin uh, for you as well. And as we kind of start to open the word together, I want you first to think about um, the word trust. What do you think about when you hear the word trust? What does it mean for you in your life to trust someone or something? Maybe for you, you have a close friend that you've confided in for many, many years, and you can trust them. You know that you can trust them. They've shown themselves trustworthy. Maybe you trust your car. You know that it it will get you to work or to the grocery store or to drop off your children somewhere. You have trust that it will get you to a certain place. Maybe when you hear the word trust, you, your mind goes in the opposite direction. Maybe you think about an employee, a friend, or a coworker who has let you down, who has shown themselves to be untrustworthy. Often in life, trust can shift for us, dependent upon our circumstance. And not only happens in our relationship with each other, with our vehicles and other things that break down, but it can also affect our relationship with the Lord. So today we're looking at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6, a text we looked at uh, earlier in the semester, but we're really looking at it under the heading of uh, why the God-man, trying to answer this question, why did Jesus have to be born at all, right? Today we're going to be looking at uh, an ancient promise, several actual ancient promises that were given throughout the scriptures concerning the Messiah that was to come. And my hope for all of us today is that we would come to this text and actually several other texts in the Old Testament and show ourselves that the God of the Bible does, in fact, deserve our full trust all the time, unwavering. He never lets us down. So let's go ahead and turn to God's word this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then 16 and 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you now. Thankful that you have given us your word, that we may study it, that we may understand it by the work of your spirit in our lives. And Father, we pray this morning that would be true, that you would allow uh, your word to come into our minds and into our hearts that we may be changed more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray. Amen. 
So as I was preparing for this sermon, I uh, looked through several news articles, kind of spanning from the beginning to the end of the year, trying to kind of just recap and think about the year that we have had. And I'm going to read a few of these uh, news article titles that I came across. Iowa town rocked by the death of four teens killed in a fiery car crash. It's life or death, the mental health crisis among U.S. teens. Next, the the Great Lockdown, the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Russia says, first day successful after declaring war on Ukraine. Hurricane Ian leaves behind a path of destruction in Florida. And last, struggling mentally during the holidays, you are not alone. I don't know if you're like me, but for me, it's easy to look around the, the world that we live in and just say, wow, like, God, are you even here? Are you seeing what I see? Are you present? Can we really trust you? Can, can you really take care of your people? For me, and I'm sure for many of us in the room, it's easy for us to lose faith in Christ when we see all the darkness around us. It's, it's easy for us to lose trust in God when life seems so heavy. So kind of the big question I'm I'm hoping for us to answer today in this text and some other texts in the Old Testament is how do you continue to trust God in a darkened world? How do you continue to trust God in a darkened world? And my proposal from our text today is two things that we would remember, the promises foretold and the promises fulfilled. Those two things, the promises foretold and the the promises fulfilled. So I'm going to give us a little introduction on where we're going today, and then I'll kind of lay it out a little bit further. So let's first look at verses 1, 2, and 3 in Romans chapter 1, okay? So in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he is called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So from the beginning of this letter, To the Romans, we see that Paul's uh, main task is to proclaim the gospel of God, the good news. And in verse 2, it tells us that this gospel is one which he promised beforehand, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So while we see the gospel was given to the apostles to go proclaim, it was not a complete novelty to them. It was not completely new because we see here in the book of Romans, and other places in the New Testament, lots of other places, if not the entire New Testament, we see that the the authors are drawing a line of continuity between the Old Testament and the promises that were there, and the fulfillment of those promises and God's very Son coming to the earth in Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses this language of being proclaimed by the prophets in verse 2, he's actually referring to all of the Old Testament, because in Paul's perspective, and Luther was famous to qu- uh, quoting this, he said that all of Old Testament scripture is completely prophetical. He's being too broad there, right? But in essence, he's saying that all of the New Testament is pointing forward from Genesis 3 forward. The Old Testament is pointing forward to a day when the curse of sin will be broken by the Messiah. So the gospel that Paul is called to proclaim here in verse 1, 2, and 3 is concerning God's very Son. It's concerning the promises that were foretold in the Old Testament and the promises fulfilled in the New Testament. Okay, so what we're going to do today 
is we're going to look at four Old Testament promises that were made. First, he was to be born as a baby. Secondly, he was to be born in Bethlehem. Third, he was to be born in the line of David. And fourth, he was born to reverse the curse of sin. And as we get into it, I kind of want you to know where I'm going. The first three are pretty short and are kind of together. So if you think, oh man, he's flying through this. We're going to get to lunch at 1130. The last one's the longest. I'm sorry, okay? So that's just the order we're going to go in. But the first three are pretty short and the last one has the most meat in it, if we would say that, okay? So let's look at these. Essentially, we're going to look at each one of these four promises, how it was foretold and how it was fulfilled. Those two things in each four of these, okay? So first, he is to be born as a baby. We see this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So in this text, and Chuck has said this even last week in the New Testament text, but even in the Old Testament text, we see that the stress of this verse from the prophet Isaiah is not so much that Emmanuel... The Messiah is to be born of a virgin. But the stress is that he's to be born at all. That he is coming. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. He is to be born for his people. God with us, lying in a manger. That is fulfilled. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So when we think about God, the creator of the universe, and how he might come, if you're anything like me, it's not in the form of a lowly baby. We had a baby, she's 17 months ago now. They are helpless, right? Think about the savior of the universe coming in the form of a baby. It must have been crazy to think that in Isaiah's time, but we see that is fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus Christ, God's very son, is born as a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, second promise. He is to be born in Bethlehem. This is Micah chapter 5, says this, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. So we saw in the Old Testament, the proud kings of Israel were almost always born in the large, powerful city of Jerusalem. But time and time again, these kings of God's people, born in Jerusalem, failed over and over and over again. They failed God's people. And the Messiah comes not through mighty Jerusalem, but through lowly Bethlehem. The Messiah comes from this little insignificant place. In Matthew 2, we see the promise fulfilled. When Herod the king of heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling with all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is shepherd of my people. So we see that Matthew's gospel quotes this very promise being made to the people of God in the Old Testament in the book of Micah. 
When Herod feels the threat, a new king has been born, he has heard. Where does he send his troops? He sends them to Bethlehem, for the king of the Jews is born. Third, he's to be born in the line of David. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in this land. So if you think about the covenant that was made with David in 2 Samuel 7, God covenants promises with David, you will have an everlasting kingdom. But do you know that David did die one day, right? But here we see that there is a promise of a king that will reign forever. That Christ comes in the line of David to fulfill the Davidic kingship that is everlasting. In Matthew 1, we see that it is fulfilled. Matthew starts right from the top on the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in our text today, Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us concerning his own son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So there's numerous other New Testament references to this idea, right, that Jesus is coming in the line of David. When uh, people would argue this point some because they say that, well, if she was born of a virgin, if Jesus was born of the virgin, then how is he in the line of David, because the line of David actually comes through Joseph's side. And I was not smart enough to think of something on my own, so I went to some other scholar that was much smarter than me, and this is what they told me. <laughs> Though not Joseph's natural son, the implication of the narrative is Jesus' Davidic descent rests on Joseph's having accepted him as his son and thereby legitimizing him. That was the time of the cult. That was what the culture said was legitimizing him, that he accepted him as his son, that Jesus is the promised Messiah through the seed of David. You know, there are many uh, objections, uh, especially in the last hundred years. Uh, critical theory applied to the Bible, uh, saying a lot of these things are false. That how do we know that these promises were really foretold hundreds of years before this man lived the earth? Well, couldn't they have just changed the dates and written them around the same time or afterwards to prove that he was the Messiah, right? This is the argument. When I, you know, I told you before, I come from a line of pastors and um, I sit down with my dad for lunch and my brother for lunch on Monday and I'm struggling with this text and I ask them, what should I do? And my dad says, you have to take them to the Dead Sea Scrolls because it's so vital to understand prophecy, okay? So one of the things that he mentioned to me is that the Dead Street Scrolls, I'm just going to read this, and then we'll go on from there. In, in, in late 1946 or 1947, there were teenagers who were tending their goats and sheep near the ancient settlement of Qumran, located on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. One of the young shepherds tossed a rock into an opening on the side of a cliff and was surprised to hear a shattering sound. He and his companions later entered the cave and found a large collection of uh, clay jars, seven of which contained leather and papyrus scrolls. An antiques dealer ended up buying the catch, which ultimately ended up in the hands of various scholars who estimated that these texts were 
2,000 years old. After word of the discovery got out, treasure hunters and archaeologists unearthed tens of thousands of additional scroll fragments from 10 nearby caves. Together, they made up between 800 and 900 manuscripts. You know, this uh, discovery happened in the heart of my grandfather's ministry. This is why why my dad brought it to me. He said, during his ministry in the 40s, when this happened... There was a 10-year gap between when they found the manuscripts to when they were actually uh, like looked at and really understood what was there, right? So the pastors at the time, the scholars at the time that were Bible-believing people were on the edge of their seat wondering, will, will these manuscripts show God is faithful? He is trustworthy. He, the promises that we have in the Old Testament, are they really the ones that we're supposed to have? So they're sitting there for 10 years, and after... Years of study, researchers found 900 texts in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which included every book of the Old Testament scripture except for Esther and Nehemiah. That the, the largest scroll was the entire book of Isaiah, nearly. That, they, that the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually 1,000 years older than the last manuscripts that we had. The last manuscripts were the Masoretic text. This was a thousand years prior to that, okay? And this is what one theologian said about the findings. Despite the thousand-year gap, scholars found that the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls nearly to be identical, with most errors being in punctuation or the spelling of words. The Dead Sea Scrolls provided valuable evidence that the Old Testament had been accurately and carefully preserved. So in this time, in the 40s and now 50s, when the pastors and the scholars may have been anxious, nervous, not trusting God, not sure what they're going to find, we see God again remained trustworthy. That the biblical canon, that is the very word of God, did not go unchanged for another thousand years previous. So like the pastors of that time, I'm sure all of us, like we mentioned earlier, can say, can I really trust God in this area of my life? It seems like he's nowhere. It seems like he's not present at all. And my hope for us is that as we look at all these kind of hard facts, promise fulfillment, lots of different information, that we would just see this, that God does what he says he will do. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. So let's look last at the the last uh, promise uh, for this morning, born to reverse the curse of sin. We're going to look at two texts here, Genesis chapter 3 and then Isaiah chapter 49. Genesis chapter 3 says this, the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's talking about the serpent and the woman. And between her offspring and your offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So most theologians would agree that there is good New Testament authority for seeing this text here as the proto-euangelion, the first glimmer of the gospel on the heels of the fracturing that sin caused in the same very chapter, we see that God provides hope still. I have not left you. 
he does say that there will be enmity between the descendants of Eve and descendants of the serpent. Now, descendants of the serpent doesn't mean little serpents everywhere, right? What it means is it's referring to natural humanity, those who trust themselves and rebel from God. And the seed of the woman refers to collectively the people of God and then also individually their representative, who is Jesus Christ, God's very son. So these two communities, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Those who trust themselves and those who trust God will be at odds. And this very promise shows us that the seed of the woman, the representative of God's people, Jesus Christ, God's very son, will put the enemy under his foot. Jesus will reverse the curse of sin. Isaiah goes on to explain further what he will do. He will save his people from sin. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says this, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here we see that the prophet explains that saving his people, the Jewish people, is not big enough, right? His salvation, redemption from sin, will reach beyond the Jewish people. He is the Messiah who will save all those who believe, Jew and Gentile, Greek and Jew, male and female. This promise of the Messiah, the one who is going to reverse the curse of sin, is fulfilled in Jesus. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We see the Messiah that was prophesied for so many years comes with the name Jesus. Jesus, which literally means, if you translate it and parse out the, the word his name, means Yahweh saves. He is the one who brings salvation for the people. He comes as a foretold Messiah of the Old Testament. In our, from our text today, Romans chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says this. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus is declared here to be the Son of God, the Messiah foretold, the one who will save his people by beating sin and death through his resurrection. So by faith in this Messiah, sinners receive grace, not only Jews, but now Gentiles. The gospel being proclaimed, the Messiah has come in power. It brings salvation for all who believe. And he will not only save his people, but he will renew the entire earth. All of creation will be renewed. You know, this time of year, many of us go to great lengths to pull off surprises. I was reminded of this even this last week. Allison said, delete your last confirmation email from Amazon right, in my inbox. Maybe you have presents that are hidden away in a closet, right? Surprises are delightful. Often we do this for our spouse or a friend or our children or parents. We give surprises in this this season of Christmas. And surprises are delightful. I think that we should enjoy them. They create some wonder around Christmas. But as we enjoy them, I think it's good and healthy for us to remember that the advent of Jesus Christ was never supposed to be a surprise. 
The true story of Christmas is not one of surprise. It's one of fulfillment. In John's gospel, when Philip goes to share the news of Jesus Christ, he says, we have found him whom the law and also the prophets wrote. They didn't say, surprise, God sent a savior. He said, we have found him. The one whom they spoke about, who they wrote about, they were expecting the Messiah to come. So this morning, we've seen several ways in which the Old Testament foretold the coming of the Messiah. And I want us really to see this as a a vivid reminder that God is faithful. He does what he says he will do. He is trustworthy. The gospel writers constantly point out this same theme, that there is a fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. Why do they do that? Because it shows more and more the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. We started at the beginning of today with talking about this idea of trust. We said, I'm going to answer the question, how do you continue to trust God in a darkened world? And I would point us today to remember the fulfillment of the so many promises. We only looked at four, but we could have done this all day. The promises that were made at the coming Messiah and how they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There was a promised Messiah coming in the line of David, and Jesus has come. And he promises again, one day in the future, he will come again. So your pain, your hurt, it may last a long time. But there will be, will be a day, one day, where he will come again. That all things will be made new once again. So know that you have a trustworthy God. One who is faithful and loving towards you and will never leave you. Let us pray together. Father God, we are weak in the flesh We often do not trust you when we ought to. Father, we pray uh, for strength as we have heard uh, your word this morning that even the gap of many years, hundreds of years between profit and fulfillment, we see faithfulness from you. And God, we pray that we would be encouraged, equipped, edified by your word this morning. Father, as we come to your table, we come as sinners in need of grace, those who have been redeemed by your Son and yet continually need your refreshment. Father, be with us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.